0: Our sermon text for this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 3, and while the sermon text is just going to be chapter 3, verses 13 to the end, we're actually going to read chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 16. We'll preach on the first part of that this week and the second part next week. As we come to God's word together, let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, again for your love, uh, which you have given us through your son, Jesus. We thank you for your word, uh, which uh, speaks of your son and speaks of your grace in him. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit now, that he would open our hearts and minds to understand the scriptures and to believe them. And to believe in your son, Jesus, and all the work that he's done for us on the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? You will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them, a light has dawned. Who is Jesus? I mean, very few people don't like Jesus. And there may be some, of course, but, but most people, if they've heard of him, uh, they, they read Jesus as a pretty good, uh, good guy, all in all. I mean, they may have bad things to say about Christianity, and especially Christians, maybe even Paul, the writer of much of the New Testament, but Jesus is okay, most people will say. He's a good person. I mean, he was a great moral teacher. He was one of the greatest men ever to live. In fact, uh, Muslims will even go so far as to say that Jesus is a prophet, One of the greatest prophets next to Muhammad. Well, who is he? Who is Jesus? Over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at Jesus and his mission. In Jesus' baptism, we uh, we, we hear about Jesus' identity and his mission as the son. And then in Jesus' temptation, which we're going to look at next week, we see Satan's challenge to Jesus' identity and mission. So this week, we'll look at the baptism. Next week, we'll look at the temptation. And this issue is important. Of course, if you're a Christian, it's important because your identity is hinged on Jesus' identity. Your mission comes from his mission. But even if you're not a Christian, looking into this issue of Jesus' identity and mission could be the defining factor of your life in understanding who you are, And what your place in the world is. It's particularly important because identity and and purpose are sort of up for grabs in our culture, aren't they? We're very keen to say that, that no one can tell you who you are. That you can be whoever you want to be. That you can choose your own destiny and your own purpose in life. Of course, what that means is we're actually left to continually sort of recreate and redefine ourselves. Which means we're really left adrift never really knowing, never really understanding who who we are and what our place is in the world. Well, here we're going to look at something solid, something firm, an anchor for our souls. We're going to look at who Jesus is and what his place in the world is. And then we'll better understand ourselves in light of that. So our outline for this morning is is pretty straightforward. We're going to talk about Jesus' identity as the Son, and then we're going to talk about Jesus' mission as the Son. Jesus' identity, and then Jesus' mission. Well, last week we heard John the Baptist proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. God's restoration from exile from the Father had come. And John was baptizing people as a sign of repentance, uh, to show their break with sin, to show their desire for cleansing and a new life. And then we read in in, uh, Matthew 3, verse 13, then Jesus came. Jesus came to be baptized by John. Now, John the Baptist wants to stop him. John says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? This doesn't make sense. Jesus says, no, let it happen. This is the right thing to do, and, and John consents. And Jesus coming up out of the water, he sees the heavens opened. God gives him a, a glimpse from earth into the heavenly places. It's as if God pulls back the curtain for a moment that separates the physical from the spiritual. And he sees the Spirit of God come down to him like a dove in appearance. And it comes and rests on Jesus. And behold, Matthew uses that word behold a number of times when he wants us to pay attention. He says, behold. A voice from heaven. And what does the voice say? The voice says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What is Jesus' identity? Who is he really? Well, in this passage, one of the first things we see is that that Jesus is greater than John, right? Jesus is greater than John. That may not tell us much, but it tells us something. Uh, We saw back in chapter 3, verse 11, John said, uh, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. See, John the Baptist knew that, that Jesus was greater than he. So John's baptism was a sign. The water symbolized the break with the old world and the entrance into the new. But Jesus would baptize with the spirit and fire. Jesus wasn't just giving a sign of the new world. Jesus was bringing the new world. He was giving the spirit of the new creation, pouring that spirit out on his people. And he comes not with water, which purifies the flesh, but he he comes with with fire, metaphorically fire, which would purify our souls. So John says he's not even worthy to carry the sandals of Jesus You know, the job of slaves was too great for John when it came to Jesus. Jesus was that much greater than John the Baptist, as far as John himself was concerned. And so when Jesus comes to be baptized, John wants to stop him. John says, I need your spirit and fire baptism. You you don't need my water baptism. How much did John understand? I mean, did he understand that Jesus really didn't need baptism at all? I mean, did he understand that Jesus was without sin? That he had, he had no need for baptism because he had no sin to repent of. Jesus was greater than John, and John knew it because he didn't need to repent, because he had no sin to repent of. So who is Jesus? Well, first, he's, he's the sinless one. That's who John sees him as, the sinless one. He's greater than John. He's greater than you and me. Well, first, he's the sinless one, but second, he's the son of God, right? Jesus is the son of God. That's this, this voice from heaven proclaims, this is my beloved son. And what the Bible means by this is, is really important, right? Jesus is not just a good man. He's not just a moral uh, teacher. He's not just a great political leader or, or a social leader. He's, he's not simply a, a man's man or, or whatever else we might want to read into the story of Jesus. He's no mere man. He's not even just a sinless man. Jesus is the beloved Son of the Father. He's the divine Son of God. He's God in human flesh. Now, sometimes we talk about children of God in different ways, right? We might talk about children of God in the sense of we're all created in the image of God. Uh, We might talk about Christians being children of God in the sense that we've been born again of God's Spirit. But that's not what the Scriptures mean when they talk about Jesus, we miss this sometimes because we use this phrase, children of God. People like that phrase, children of God, uh, but, but people in Jesus' day didn't miss it. In fact, one time Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath in John chapter five, and the religious leaders were all upset because Jesus was working on the Sabbath. And uh, Jesus responded, my father is working until now, and I am working. And John tells us, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. See, Jesus is equal with the father. He is uniquely the son of God. He is equal with God because he is God come in human flesh. And even here in in the baptism of Jesus, we really see all three persons of the Trinity at work, don't we? We see uh, Jesus, who's God the son, taking on human flesh, coming uh, in our place. We see the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. We see the, hear the Father's voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son. So we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus is the sinless, unique Son of God, but he's more than that. Even, there's something else we see here. Third, we see that Jesus is the beloved Son of the Father. He's unique, he is alone, the beloved son. Uh, This is said of of no one else in scripture, right? Even in 2 Samuel, back in 2 Samuel, which says that a son of David would be to God a son, that he's not called God's beloved son. Even in Psalm 2, which we sung earlier, uh, which says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Those words, uh, the words my beloved, with whom I am well pleased, are not there. Why is that? Well, because while those passages and promises point us forward to Jesus, and they do, they could also be applied to others. They could be applied to Solomon. They could be applied to David. But the title of the beloved son is reserved for Jesus alone. He's the fulfillment of those Old Testament signs. And so there's no confusion. Here, we're told, here is the unique son of God. Here is the beloved son. There's one more thing about Jesus we should notice as we think about who he is. He's, he's, the, he's the sinless Beloved son of the father, but he's also, in light of that, he's well-pleasing to the father. The voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well-pleased. He's sinless. He's the beloved son who always does what pleases the father, according to the scriptures. We're told that his meat and drink is to do his father's will, that he came for that purpose of no one else can it be said, in that in themselves they are well-pleasing to the father. So Jesus is the sinless son whom the Father loves, who always does what pleases the Father. He's the obedient son. Now, there have been other sons of God in the Bible, unlike Jesus, but people who are given that title. Uh, We've already mentioned children of God in a general sense of being created by him or born of him. But but there are two other places in Scripture where people are called sons of God. Uh, Two other in particular. Adam is called a son of God. Right? Adam is called the son of God, and Israel as a nation is called the son of God. Now what's striking about those two sons is that they're both disobedient. Right? Adam is placed in the garden to dwell with God and God's good world, and Adam rebels against God, he makes a mess of God's world, and he's cast out of the garden. Israel is placed in the promised land to dwell with God and God's good land, and Israel rebels against God and makes a mess out of God's land and is cast out of the promised land. And so here comes Jesus, right? Son of God. And there should be a real question in our minds if we're reading our Bibles and thinking about the way this story works. God raises up a son and he rebels. God raises up a son and he rebels. The question is, is this son going to screw it up too? Right, is, 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 here's another one. Is he gonna make a mess out of things? But God tells us from the start, this son is different. This is my beloved son with whom I am well-pleased. And the Gospel of Matthew, as we read on, we're going to see it's really all about sonship from one perspective. From, starting from verse 1, right, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, and he's also the son of God. We're told later that uh, he's conceived by the Holy Spirit to show that he is God's son. And in chapter 2, we're told that he's God's son who was called out of Egypt, Then John the Baptist comes on the scene and he he calls on the religious leaders not to presume on their status as sons of Abraham because God could raise up sons from these stones, he says. And then here comes Jesus, the beloved son. And as the son, Jesus is going to call his disciples to live a life of sonship. Matthew is, is, is very much about discipleship, very much about following Jesus But the discipleship that Matthew calls us to is living in imitation of the sonship of Jesus. And so most famously, right, Jesus is going to teach his disciples to pray, our father, right? But that's not isolated in Matthew. We'll see that language again and again as we study the book, that Jesus is calling his disciples to live as sons of God. now sometimes this this, uh, language of of sonship offends us a little bit in our day because we say, well, why not child or children? That's much more PC. Why this masculine son or sonship or sons? But the language of sonship is actually really important. Whether you're a, a, a male or female, you are a son of God, the Bible teaches, and that's important. In fact, we can't lose that. If we, if we lose that, we're actually we're going to lose some of the meaning of what the Bible is getting across by that word son. Because sons in the ancient world are the ones who receive the inheritance. They're the ones who receive the family fortune, the family business, the family name. It went to the sons. To be a son is to be an heir. And so for Jesus to be the son of God is about parentage in one sense he is the divine son the son of the father but more than that it means that Jesus is the one who stood before John in the flesh as the heir of heaven right he's the one to whom all power and authority would come and when Jesus calls us sons of the father you and me male and female he is calling us heirs as well heirs of of of, uh, heirs of heaven heirs of God's promises heirs of God's blessing and so the language of sonship is important So Jesus here is the unique beloved Son of the Father who will call us into a relationship of sonship. Now that begins, of course, to move us from thinking about Jesus' identity as the Son to Jesus' mission as the Son. What is Jesus' mission? And I think sometimes we, we, we think about Jesus', Jesus mission in, in popular culture in a very small way, right? Jesus came to help people in need. Uh, he came to you know, establish social justice, or he came to change our political agenda, or he, he came as sort of the ultimate encourager. You know, sometimes pictures of Jesus, they, they just look so weak, right? Um, Jesus, he just looks sort of this, like this saccharine, sweet, nice guy who never upsets anyone and never calls anyone out. He just came to affirm everybody and everything they do, right? And that's what we think of Jesus. I, I think of this one picture, uh, this one painting um, I remember in a, in a church. It was, you've probably seen it. You may have seen it. I hope it's not in any of your houses. But it, uh, it's a picture of Jesus knocking at, knocking at a door, you know, and it comes from Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But the way, we, the way we read that is Jesus is just hoping that maybe somebody might possibly open the door, right? It's like Jesus is hoping, maybe please invite me in. If you read Revelation chapter 3, that's not what it's saying. But that's the way we read it, and that's the way the picture looks. Jesus just came to hopefully maybe do some good to somebody who might happen to open the door for him. Our pictures of Jesus are way too small, aren't they? And John the Baptist already told us that Jesus came to baptize with the spirit and fire, right? To begin the restoration of the world and, and to judge, right? To, to cut down the fruitless tree and to cast the chaff into the fire. The, the renewal of the world and the judgment of all people, that's no weak, small thing. But in Jesus' baptism, the Father not only literally tells us who Jesus is, this is my beloved son, but he also tells us more about Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission, according to his baptism, is actually to identify with sinners as the suffering servant. We see this in a couple of ways. First, we, we see it in the act of baptism itself. And Jesus comes to John to be, baptized, to, be, to be baptized, and John realizes that this makes no sense. Jesus has no need to be baptized by John. But Jesus insists in order to fulfill all righteousness. And, and as one person put it, rather than standing with John calling sinners to repentance, Jesus is standing with sinners to receive a baptism of repentance. Jesus comes to stand with sinners, to identify with us in our fallen condition, in our need for repentance and restoration. And that, that Jesus came to, fil- to fulfill all righteousness echoes Isaiah 53. Uh, we read that earlier, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And how will he do that? According to Isaiah, and he shall bear their iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus came to identify with us, to be numbered with the transgressors. In fact, he came to take our sin upon himself. Jesus comes to identify in his baptism with sinners. And the voice from heaven confirms this, actually. Uh, You know, that phrase, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, it's an echo of other Old Testament passages. Genesis 22, verse 2. Genesis uh, 22, verse 2. God comes to Abraham and says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. In, in one of sometimes the most frustrating passages of Scripture, God calls Abraham to sacrifice the son he loved. But here the Father introduces his son as the son he loves because he is the one who has come to be sacrificed for sinners. God's uh, phrase in, 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 uh, in this verse also echoes Isaiah 42.1. Uh, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. In Isaiah, God introduces the suffering servant as the one in whom his soul delights and as the one on whom God has placed his spirit. Well, here's Jesus. He's received the spirit and he's proclaimed as the one who delights his Father. Jesus comes as the suffering servant to identify with sinners, to bear our iniquities, to suffer in our place as a sacrifice for sin. But third, the end of the passage confirms this as well. You know, we read all the way to Matthew 4, uh, verse 16, and you may wonder, why did we read so much? Well, that end part, verses 12 through 16, kind of bookends this passage. You know, uh, upon hearing of John's arrest, Jesus goes to Galilee. So chapter three begins John's ministry, Well, chapter four ends John's ministry, right? And we speculate, why is it that Jesus went to Galilee in response to John's arrest? There could be lots of reasons, but Matthew tells us the purpose in his usual way, right? Matthew uh, chapter four, verses 14 through 16. Why did Jesus go to Galilee? So that what was spoken by the prophet of Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus goes to fulfill scripture. Jesus goes to be a light to the Gentiles. He goes to continue to identify with those who are outside of Israel, the spiritually lost, the irreligious, those farthest from the truth, the Gentiles. He's continuing his mission to identify with, with sinners, with those who are most in need of grace. Jesus' mission is to identify with sinners as the suffering servant. And now John the Baptist had already said Jesus came to baptize with the Spirit. He came to bring renewal uh, that only the the, the Spirit of God can bring. But that mission, as we see now, requires Jesus as the beloved and well-pleasing Son, as the heir of all things, to identify with sinners in their sin and misery, and ultimately to suffer with and for them. It doesn't sound like a great mission. But, but that is the way in which Jesus, the God-man, will inherit all things. He, he is the heir, but he inherits through his suffering. That's the path the Father has laid out for him. This is the Father's plan, echoing uh, Acts 14, right, that through many tribulations, Jesus will inherit the kingdom. Jesus comes as the Son, the heir of all things, to identify with sinners and to suffer with, with and for them And so inherit the kingdom and the renewal of all by the Spirit. Okay, what difference does this make, right? What difference does this make for us? I mean, if you're not a Christian, right, who cares? Well, just assume for a second that this is true. That Jesus really did come to identify with sinners, God in the flesh, to die for sin, that he might renew us by his Spirit and save us from the judgment, his judgment, to come. Don't you wish that were true? I mean, don't you wish that there was a God in heaven who cared so much about you that he would come out of heaven, become a man and take on your trouble and offer you newness of life by his spirit? That's a pretty big thing just to pass over, just to ignore with a wave of a hand, right? I mean, do you know your own sin, that you're a sinner, that you need forgiveness? Do you know that all wrongs will be righted one day, justice will come, but that means judgment for all those who have held on to their sins and not turned in repentance to Jesus. Are, do you know your own guilt and shame? Right? Do, do you have secret sins that you hide because you know that no one in polite company would, would ever want to be near you if they only knew what was going on in your heart? Do you struggle with doing the right thing? Do you feel the tug of your heart to sin? Do you recognize your need then that, that I, I need to be changed, I need to be different? This is what Jesus comes to bring. He comes to identify with us in our guilt and in our shame and in our sinful compulsion. He comes to bear our guilt, to remove our shame and to renew our hearts, to free us from sin's rule by giving us his spirit. Well, if you believe that and if you have already trusted in Jesus, then then what does this passage mean for us? How How do we understand it? Well, one, remember, as we said earlier, that Jesus' identity gives us our identity as Christians. Jesus' identity as the Son who is well-pleasing to the Father means that that He and He alone can teach us to call on God as our Father. And only because Jesus came to identify with us in our sin can we have confidence to identify with Him as a Son. You see, by faith, we're we're, uh, united to Jesus, the Bible says, His status as a well-pleasing son becomes our status. If you've trusted in Jesus, your status with the Father is a well-pleasing son. He delights in you because of Jesus. Do you live in the knowledge of that? That in Jesus, you are a beloved child or son of God, which means that you're an heir, right? That all the glories of heaven are yours because those glories belong to Jesus. And by faith, you are united to Jesus so that what's his is yours. He is the son. When you trust in him, you become a son. He is the heir. When you trust in him, you become an heir. Do you live in that security and in that intimacy of being a child of God, an heir of all the glories to come? Meditate on that. Meditate on that until it fills your heart and gives you joy. That you're a child of God, an heir of heaven. Two, Jesus' mission, not only does his identity give you your identity, but his mission gives you your mission. Now, this is where it gets scary, right? Because Jesus' mission was to come to identify with sinners as a suffering servant. And guess what the mission of the Christian life is? Here's the way the Bible puts it, Jesus. Here's the way Jesus puts it. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Ultimately, our mission is to identify with sinners as Jesus identified with sinners and love others sacrificially the way Jesus loved others sacrificially. Now, it's hard to do, isn't it? I mean, it's hard on the one hand to, to be willing to identify with sinners and outcasts because to identify with someone who's on the outside or on the fringe like Jesus did makes you on the outside, right? We don't want our, our reputations tarnished, our good names dragged through the mud. This is what happened to Jesus, right? He, he spent his time with tax collectors and sinners and, and the, the religious leaders said, why does your teacher spend time with tax collectors and sinners, right? What is he doing? And you might wonder, well, what, what does this even look like today? I mean, in part, it means befriending non-Christians anywhere. I think that some of it might mean even befriending non-Christians who seem to us the most far away, right? Who's, who's as far away from the gospel as you can imagine, right? Who is least likely to come to know Jesus in your mind, humanly speaking? I think who, who has a stigma today in the church, right? In that day, it was tax collectors, right? They had the stigma among religious people. Who has that stigma today? I mean, maybe there are lots of people. I I can name just a a couple, right? Who has the stigma today? I think people like homosexuals, abortion doctors, right? Anti-theists, right? Uh, Professors of naturalistic evolution, right? These are the people that in the church were like, oh, they're the bad people, right? It's what we think. Those are the people often that religious people despise or look down on. The truth is, of course, they're they're no worse than anybody else in ourselves, in our flesh, in our sin. But we think they are. Could you see yourself befriending the people that the religious elite despise the way Jesus did? Could you see yourself identifying with them in their fallenness in order to show them grace? That would be hard, wouldn't it? Second, the New Testament consistently calls us to live lives of suffering. And it's again and again throughout the New Testament. It calls us to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Of course, taking up a cross, the cross was the instrument of, of, of uh, execution in that day. So take up our cross and follow Jesus. It calls it, the Bible calls us to put to death what is earthly in us. Uh, to put others before ourselves, which requires that we put to death our pride and our selfishness and our self-indulgence. The Bible calls us to forgive others as we have been forgiven, which requires us to, again, to put to death our desire to be right, our desire for justice, our desire for revenge. It's not easy to put those things to death in us. The Bible calls us to do good to all men, especially brothers and sisters in Jesus, which, again, requires that we put to death our focus on our own needs and begin focusing on the needs of others. The New Testament calls us to give Not out of abundance, but even out of our lack. It says it's more blessed to give than receive. Which means that as we sacrificially give, as we give until it hurts, which is what it means to give sacrificially, right, that we find the most joy. Now I know this only in theory, right, because I'm such a miserly person. It's so hard to to genuinely give sacrificially, I don't don't want to be interrupted, right? And give away my time to others when I've got so many important and interesting things to do, right? I I, I don't want to give away my money to those who are in need because I have things I want to buy, right? I I don't want to give up uh, recreation time for service time, right? I don't don't want to give because in my sinful fallen nature, right? My life is about me. And yet God calls us to take up our cross and follow Jesus, which means our lives are to be about others and serving them in love. And as we look to Jesus as the son, the heir of all things, the one who had everything, who willingly came to identify with me in my sin and be the suffering servant, to to give his life as a sacrifice in my place, that will melt my stubbornness and my selfishness. That will melt my heart as I look to him. And as he pours out on me his renewing spirit to give me a new heart, I will become like him, a son of God, willing to love sacrificially those in need. Let's pray. Our Father, we need your spirit. We need your spirit because we are so hard-hearted. We are so selfish. I am so hard-hearted and selfish. We need your spirit to renew us. We need your spirit to open our eyes to see Jesus in all of his glory as the son who came to suffer for sinners so that as we see the greatness of his love in that our hearts would be melted, that we would be renewed, that we would be changed, that we would be transformed into the image of your son as we behold his glory. And that we would then go out and reflect that glory to the world as we seek to love others sacrificially in Jesus' name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.